Hello and welcome back to our study of Matthew. This is the third part in our study looking at the Gospel of Matthew. In, in particular, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount. What is it that the Sermon on the Mount reveals to us about Matthew's strategy, about how Matthew uh, tells the story of Jesus and the particular angle that Matthew puts on it, and what the author of Matthew wants us to be able to gain from reading that Gospel account. So today we're picking up with Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be beginning in verse 1, going through verse 18. Um, and we're going to look at a, a small portion of this. And then um, as we've done in the previous weeks, we're going to give particular attention to the pattern that Matthew presents um, that, that is used in this, uh, this little set of teachings. Uh, because we, we can't go through every detail that pops up in these verses, um, but instead we're going to look at the pattern that applies to them. Um, and then we're going to trace how that pattern appears in different segments of the, the lesson. And then from there, we'll actually... Um, in the end, encourage you to think about some practices of your own and how this pattern that Matthew uses to critique religious practice might actually be applied to uh, uh, practices that aren't mentioned in the text and how we could actually apply and learn from the pattern that Matthew is trying to teach us rather than the specific examples only that Matthew gives us instead. So let's look at a, a quick review um, from, from last week. So the very first week we talked about Matthew and Mark, the comparisons between Matthew and Mark and the differences between their two gospels. We reviewed that again the second week, so we won't review it again um, the third week, but looking back at what we did last week as we looked at the Be Beatitudes. Um, and as I mentioned in, in Matthew chapter five, we gave attention to some of the patterns that appear in the Beatitudes, what it is that Jesus is, or what, what it is that uh, that Jesus is teaching, and then how Matthew is um, clustering them together in certain pairings, what it is that Matthew wants to communicate about the teachings of Jesus as well. Some of those things that we drew attention to were that the Beatitudes are intentionally paradoxical. Uh, so in 5.5, 5, we have blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we said that in the paradox of, uh, it is a paradox, that those who are meek um, those who we might equate the word meek with weak, um, those who are not in power, those who are not um, destructive or authoritative or any of those things that it's paradoxical that those people would then inherit the earth, um, either as having the wealth and, and the possessions and the family lineage to inherit something, but then also uh, the idea of the inheriting the earth and having some type of uh, also a notion of conquest as well. So um, it seems unlikely, paradoxical in this world that those who are meek um, who the, those who hold back any type of power they have would actually be the ones to then conquer and, and inherit the earth. We also talked about that those who need become those who actually have. So in the Beatitudes, those who need something in this world actually become in the present, in the future world, um, what Matthew refers to as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Um, so those who are in need in this world, this earthly world, actually become those who have in the world to come. So an example of that different from the one that we used last week um, is the, that blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And so we have those who are currently mourning in this world compared with what will be their future reward, their reward in the kingdom of heaven, and that is that they will be comforted. And then we also mentioned that Matthew spiritualizes um, the Beatitudes. So some of these same teachings appear in the Gospel of Luke, especially in um, Luke chapter 6. Um, and in comparison to where Luke very clearly um, focuses on the physical and the tangible impact of uh, on people's lives or on the distinction between the wealthy and the poor, uh, Matthew tends to spiritualize that by adding little um, phrases to accompany these things. So he had, Luke says, blessed are the poor. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So from that, we can uh, deduce a, a number of um, hypothetical situations of why Matthew does this. Um, but one of these may just simply be that Matthew wants this to become a kind of universal principle um, that, that everybody can apply, everybody can learn from. So even if you don't find yourself among the, the physically or economically poor, you should still learn from this beatitude, this blessing, that poorness is an attitude. It's not just a, uh, a physical circumstances of life. So Matthew kind of spiritualizes some of these. Uh, so blessed are the poor in spirit is one example of those. Uh, one example of that um, spiritualizing that he does here. So something that comes from this that we kind of touched on and, and mentioned last week, but I want to summarize it in concrete words, uh, concrete terminology now. 
um, is the Mathean contrast that we have here that pops up. And that is that the, the logic that applies to this world falls apart whenever it's applied to the world to come. And as we said, that is the, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So the, the logic that governs this current world that we are in cannot be taken over into the kingdom of heaven. And if it's attempted to be taken over into the kingdom of heaven, it falls apart. It doesn't work. Uh, and if we think about this as a coin, uh, the flip side of this coin is essentially the same thing, just stated in reverse, that the logic of the kingdom of heaven is incomprehensible when we bring it into this world. So if we take the things that make sense in the kingdom of heaven, we bring them into this world and we try to justify them by this worldly standards to say, these things make sense and then here's the worldly logic of why it makes sense, it also falls apart. And that's part of what Matthew is trying to get across with, um, not just the Beatitudes, but then we'll see with our instructions that we look at today as well, um, is this, this distinct contrast that exists um, between the logic of this world and the logic of the kingdom of heaven and an attempt to bring these two realms over into each other. Um, Matthew doesn't say that you can't bring these two things over into each other. Uh, he's actually specifically saying the opposite. He's saying that you actually need to take this uh, heavenly um, logic, this heavenly way of thinking, this otherworldly way of thinking, and you need to bring it into this realm. But you need to recognize that when you do bring it into this realm, all of those who think according to this realm are not going to understand it. So that's, uh, that's something that comes out strongly in the Beatitudes. It's part of the reason why they appear so paradoxical is because we're applying a kingdom value system to a worldly situation. And from a worldly perspective, it makes no sense. It makes no sense to say that the meek will inherit the earth. Uh, but Matthew nonetheless says, despite it not making sense in this world, we know that it makes sense in this heavenly kingdom, and therefore we pursue this even when it doesn't appear to make sense in this in this earthly realm. So that's kind of the Matthean contrast that we pick up here. It's it's really not a distinctly Matthean um, context, and and a lot of people, if you read uh, different New Testament literature, will refer probably a more common way of referring to this as it just being an eschatological view, uh, the view that there's a, a distinct separation in the ages of the world between the age that we now live in and the age that is to come. Um, and so Matthew and many New Testament writers are encouraging us to begin to think with the logic of the kingdom that is to come, but in our current time of actually living in the present realm. So let's keep that in mind as we go through, because it's apparent in the Beatitudes, but it becomes even more striking and more apparent, um, or it, it provides the foundation for um, the instructions that we're going to look at today as well. So we'll see how this logic that's introduced in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 actually weaves its way all the way through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to try to keep that in mind as we go through um, each lesson, uh, each of our remaining lessons. So looking today at Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look only at the first 18 verses, um, and then we're going to pick up next week looking at um, value in the sense of possessions and um, how we determine what worth is, um, those type of questions. But today I want us to look at the idea of the religious practices um, that Matthew addresses here in these verses. So the pattern that I've mentioned that we pay attention to throughout these, these verses is uh, what I've labeled here just as the hypocrite pattern. Um, but it's a very simple pattern. Um, and once we identify it, and once we apply it to the specific, to the, to the correct little segments of these verses, um, and by that I mean there's kind of, there's kind of two verse segments that appear here um, in these verses, Matthew 6, uh, verses 2 through 4, verses 5 through 6, and then verses six, uh, 16 through 18. And so once those verses are peeled out of their context and we read those kind of three two-verse sections together, that's a really confusing sentence to say. We read those three little clusters together. Um, this pattern becomes very, very clear. Um, and it also really helps clarify what it is that Matthew is trying to say with these verses, because uh, it can get confusing. One thing that, that Matthew um, puts right here in the middle of this and kind of in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. Um, and it's going to be a, a travesty to some of you that um, I've actually chosen not to address the Lord's Prayer today in our session, uh, because I want us to think about the pattern that Matthew presents and how we can apply that to our own lives. So we're actually going to set aside the Lord's Prayer uh, from our discussion today and not give it the, the individual attention um, that it needs. But 
part of the reason this pattern can seem hard to follow if we um, just read the whole 18 verses together is that, for instance, uh, Matthew inserts the Lord's Prayer directly into the middle of this section. So the Matthew five verse, uh, Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, and then their connection to verses 16 through 18 is hard to maintain if you're distracted or kind of taken, um, taken down this road of looking at this segment that comes in the middle, and then Matthew comes back or brings back up this pattern again. So we're going to compare just those little short clustered groups together um, and, and then uh, focus on those for today. And hopefully we'll be able to, in a future lesson, um, reference back to the Lord's Prayer. We're not at all skipping it because it's unimportant. It's actually, you can make the case that it rests at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. So it, it actually is the core um, of the Sermon on the Mount and provides a lot of theology for the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon of, uh, or and Matthew's Gospel as well. So um, it's, it's unfortunate that time-wise we won't have time to cover it, but we will definitely be referencing back to it um, as we go through. So here's the hypocrite pattern. Very simple, as I said. Um, if we label these kind of in part one and part two, part one has three parts. Matthew says, don't be like a hypocrite. Part B is he says that hypocrites do something in order to please people. And then part C is he says that those hypocrites who are trying to please people Part C is that they have already received their, their reward. Everything they're going to get out of their behavior, they're already receiving it because the, the ultimate outcome that they can hope for is that people uh, praise them and honor them for their behavior. So that's part one. Part two is the direct contrast to that where Matthew says, but instead be like this. And what, what this particular thing is, is different in each verse, but essentially what he says, and if we're to summarize them, is he said that instead... Um, do this practice in private is generally the instruction he gives. So do these things alone by yourself in private. That's part um, one or part B. I'm sorry. That's part two um, of this instruction. And that's the first section of it. And then two B is to please God. So if we do these things in private, then we actually please God instead of pleasing people. And then the third part of it, part C, is that um, whereas the hypocrite has already received their reward the person who does these things to please God will actually receive their reward in the future. They will receive their full reward um, in the kingdom of heaven. So that's kind of the, the, the um, division of the pattern that Matthew follows here. Don't be a hypocrite who tries to please people and in the attempt to please people already has their reward, but instead do things in private, please God. And when you please God, you will have your reward in the future, even if you don't have it now. Um, so we can start with this section um, with Matthew 6, verse 1, because Matthew introduces um, this pattern, actually, um, with the opening verse of this. So Matthew says in 6, verse 1, and this is here and throughout this um, lecture is the New Living Translation that I'm using. So Matthew 6, verse 1 says, watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for then you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. So Matthew 6, verse 1 sets out perfectly um, the first part of this pattern that, that I've already suggested is here. Don't do things publicly. Don't do it to be admired by other people. And if you do, you actually lose your reward um, from your father in heaven. So let's look at a couple examples. Um, there's three that Matthew provides here. Um, so let's look at these three examples as we go through here um, and look at how Matthew applies them to particular practices and particular situations. So Matthew chapter six, um, looking at verses two through four, this is where Matthew gives instructions on giving. Um, so we're looking not just at the general principle of not pleasing people, but now we're looking at a specific religious practice, um, almsgiving, helping the poor, giving to the needy. So he says, whenever you give to someone who is in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing their trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call the attention to the acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have already received all the reward that they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. So we can see the pattern that we've already talked about here. Um, don't be like the hypocrites who uh, blow trumpets in the street to announce their charity. Um, they've already received everything they're going to receive. Instead, Whenever you help somebody, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing or your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give the gifts in private and God who knows everything, God will be the one who provides a, a reward to you. 
So a few things I want to point out about this first as we go through. Um, the, the hypocrites, the phrase we've already been using throughout this, um, can have the modern sense of which we traditionally use it today of a person who kind of speaks out of both sides of their mouth that, that says one thing and then actually does another. Um, in the ancient context, it, it actually can just kind of have the sense here of, um, we might say that somebody who's grandstanding, right? Somebody who's doing things in order to please people, who's doing things in public view in order to get the public praise. Um, so they appear to be doing something for one intention, such as giving, I'm giving in order to help those who are in need, but in truth, the, the true motive of what they're doing is they're doing this in order to gain the praise of other people. Um, so it doesn't mean kind of the, the strict, like opposite idea that we have with hypocrisy today, which is where you say one thing and you do the exact opposite. It just kind of has the idea of somebody who's who's grandstanding, who's putting on for other people, who's who's doing things in order to gain praise. Um, and that, so it's, it's in, in, uh, inauthentic in their motivation for doing these things. The other thing I want to draw attention to with this opening verse is that it mentions the synagogue here, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and the streets to call attention to their acts of charity. Um, I've already mentioned this in the previous lecture of part two, um, the idea of how reading critiques of the law and Jesus's alternative interpretations of the law has a, a traumatic history um, in New Testament literature, in the field of New Testament studies, in Christianity, and in the history of our world, of reading those um, passages as critiques against Judaism and against how Jews in particular behave. Um, and we said last week that uh, we want to be sure and give attention to the fact that Jesus is not saying, uh, because you are Jews, you have misread the law, and because you are Jews, then you, you do these legalistic things. Um, that Jesus is actually saying that because you are human, you tend to do these legalistic things. It just happens to be in a Jewish context that Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking of the Jewish law. So therefore, the, the focus of his attention is on Jewish practices. Um, so I want to bring that up again here to say that when Jesus brings up the synagogue um, here in, in Matthew 6, this is not a, a specific critique that the, the, these two phrases, the hypocrite that appears here above in, in uh, verse the beginning of verse two, and then synagogue that appears immediate below, those two things aren't parallels here, right? That Jesus nowhere says in here that because you are Jews, you are behaving as hypocrites. He's saying, again, because humans have a tendency to grandstand and to want praise of people over praise of God or present reward over future reward, because you're human, you have a tendency to do these things, and I'm telling you not to do them. Why is the synagogue mentioned then? The synagogue's mentioned because Jesus is speaking to a, to a Jewish audience, and he wants to, to focus on what would be the, the maximum exposure that a person would have. What would be the place where someone could gain the maximum exposure for their action? Um, and in the ancient world, pre-news, pre pre-internet, pre pre-sorry, pre pre-newspaper, uh, pre all of this mass communication, in-person gatherings were the place where you would gain maximum exposure. And so Paul uh, and Jesus here picks um, the two most obvious of these, that the places where you would run into the most people um, for an ancient Jew would be in the synagogue and would be in the streets. So uh, with these examples of the synagogue and the streets, Jesus is just highlighting the human tendency to want to gain praise from other people. Um, if we were to convert this into our modern context, it might be, um, you know, what, what, um, how are you broadcasting your charitable actions in school? Or how are you doing it in work? How are you doing it at church? How are you doing it um, at PTA meetings? How are you doing it on social media, which we'll talk about in just a minute? Um, how are you doing this at your, at your book clubs? How are you doing this at your gym, right? How are you doing, how are you broadcasting the good things that you're doing in order to get the people around you to be like, oh yeah, that so-and-so, that uh, she or he's a good person. So uh, the, the critique here is not, again, of the synagogue and the Jews particularly, it's of anywhere that humans tend to cluster and gather, and that provides an opportunity for us to kind of boast of the own, our own things that we're doing. Um, we see with the pattern as well that, that we've mentioned that, um, the Jesus's idea here is that because they're seeking the praise of people and they supposedly, um, we assume, gain that praise of people, then they've actually received all of the reward that they're going to get. That's that's everything. That's it. So the charity, 
that you're doing for other people if you're using it to gain and kind of boast your boost your own ego and gain praise from other people and you receive that praise that's it that's the maximum return you're going to receive on that uh, but then in verse four uh, his encouragement is that instead we give gifts in private uh, and it just follows this kind of this simple pattern keep it a secret god will know what you're doing god will will reward you um, so that's the Matthean contrast or Jesus's contrast here to how public praise, how things are done for public praises. Instead, we invert them and we do them secretly and we rely on God knowing everything and God being the one who recognizes um, how, those, how those gifts and acts are played out. So let's look at another example. We can move a, a little bit more quickly through this one um, as well. Um, now that we have the pattern in mind and now that we've seen one example, um, Jesus turns to prayer. So he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Again, the, the same phrase as before, who love, to play, who love to pray publicly on the street corners. So we have the streets again and in the synagogues. So we have the synagogues, the public religious gatherings where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth that it is all the reward they will ever get. So almost the exact same um, scenario as before. Just we've changed from giving to prayer. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. So again, with this pattern, we have the same thing in the end, that it's a prayer that's offered to the father in private. It's the father who sees things that are done in private um, who will reward them. And so it's the future reward that one counts on or the uh, kingdom reward that one counts on rather than the public or, or uh uh, praise that one would receive. Now, the final example, so we've looked at, at giving and prayer, and now we're at fasting. Um, in some ways, you could say this kind of summarizes the private religious life of an ancient person, um, giving to others, helping others, or particularly, let me say, the private religious life of a Jewish person. Um, and that's the context that Jesus is, is teaching in here. Um, so the giving, the charitable giving in order to help others, the prayer that one does in order to um, communicate dependence upon God, and then fasting. Um, so we have these kind of three facets of what would be a private person's individual um, acts of worship. Um, so it's, it's not individualistic. Um, we have a, a strong tendency in American churches and Western churches to think of that my religious beliefs or my convictions are my personal relationship, are my personal relationship with God. And that that's the most important thing. And that, you know, church or community or those type of things come secondary to my own convictions. That's not what I'm saying by this being um, the private life of one, but I'm saying the, the private life that accompanies the community um, in addition to a communal act of worship and a communal participation, one also has to have private practice and pri private religious practices. Um, and this, these three practices in a, in a nutshell uh, kind of summarize what those private practices would be um, for an ancient Jew and then um, also for the earliest Christians as well. But something interesting happens here um, with the instruction on fasting. So let's pay attention to, the, to this. Um, verse six, chapter six, verse 16 through 18. And when you do fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. So the synagogue is gone, the street corner is gone, and instead of that, we get kind of a, a upping of one's game of pretense, that they're intentionally, um, not just presumably they're miserable and, and disheveled anyways from fasting, if they're doing any type of significant fasting, uh, but they go above and beyond to intentionally make themselves look more miserable, more disheveled, so that other people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth that this is the only reward that they will ever get, the same um, idea as before. But pay attention here to verse 17 and 18. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father. So before we had the idea of whatever you do in private, you just, uh, or whatever act of worship you're doing, you do it in private. Um, maybe not secretively, just in private. You don't try to draw attention to yourself. You do it um, quietly um, and you do it as an act of worship that you only intend for God to see. What I think is interesting about this fasting in verse 17 is that it, it goes from being a quiet act of worship to almost a covert act of worship, that you are not only trying to quietly do something, but you're actually actively being um, 
you know, being secretive. You're hiding the fact that you are doing something religious. Um, and I think that that really draws our attention to the degree to which Jesus uh, is trying to draw attention here to the importance of these acts being done for the proper motivation. And that motivation being one's communication and relationship with God um, and not any type of, of um, reward from people or any type of reward from earthly um, sources that we might expect. Uh, so verse 17 and 18, again, to close out this, these verses, but when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father who knows what you do in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. So in general, verses 16 through 18 follow the same pattern that we've seen before. Um, we just get that um, we get a little bit more emphasis on not just being quiet about your acts of worship, but actually keeping them um, on the on the download and trying to hide that you're actually doing them in order to maintain the pure motivation um, that you need. So I want us to end by thinking um, just briefly about uh the idea of what it, what this would mean translated into our modern context. So I've mentioned the synagogue and the streets being kind of two ancient forums where one would uh, receive the most attention, where one would be able to gain the most uh, exposure. That is not the case in our world today, right? I mean, those are still options. The street option really isn't that um, really isn't that uh, important. If we think about uh, most streets. Um, in American culture, we all drive cars. Nobody pays attention to people who aren't driving cars if you're walking on the side of the street. Um, and if you think about the street preachers that, that you do see, um, how many of us stop and give them attention and pay attention to them? So the street, in a sense, is kind of no longer our public forum for, for discussion. The church, um, if we replace the synagogue with the church, if we're reading this in a Christian context, the church still remains a place where we can gain great exposure to a large number of people and great praise for charitable and good deeds that we're doing. So I think the church, that setting still remains one that, that is really critical for us to think about um, of what it means for us to broadcast our good deeds in front of the people of the church um, when we're gathered together. And what's the balance between doing our private acts of worship and being engaged in a community where we hold each other up and encourage each other. So I think that's a, an interesting question that we have to consider. Um, but I want us to, to think um, in the bigger context, and I think it's probably the bigger struggle for, for many, of, uh, many of us in the Western world. Um, and that is, I want to take a step back and think about a philosophical question for a minute. I'm sure you're all familiar with and have heard the saying, uh, something along the lines of that if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does it make any sound? And, you know, the philosophical question that is sometimes treated as silly um, is the question that if no one is around to witness something, how do we know it actually happened? And you would say, of course, a tree that falls in the woods makes sound. And the rebuttal would be, well, how do you know? Because you can't, no one was there to hear it. And if you were there to hear it, then you can't answer the question because then the question is moot because it doesn't apply because somebody was there. Um, so that's the, the, this kind of ancient philosophical question of if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, um, does it actually make a sound? I think the modern equivalent to that question for many of us in our lives seems to be from a social perspective, that if something happens in our life, but no one is there to document it, then does it really happen? Right. And this is from a social media context of if I eat a great meal and I don't post on um, if I don't post on Snapchat that it was amazing or, or I don't share with my friends in an in a instant message that I just had this incredible meal or I don't take a picture and put it on Instagram. I don't send out a tweet. I don't do any of these things to, to share with others this incredible meal that I've had. Then have I really had an incredible meal? Um, and then I think we can see this as well. Um, let's talk about the ind individual first, and then we'll talk about the, the church. From the individual perspective, we can see this, um, I think, because it's very easy for us to um, be out doing some type of service, a day of service. Uh, several weeks ago, I, I think there was a national day of service, and I know that uh, my church 
uh, put together several different events around the community that we all went out and helped with doing different things and cleaning up parks and serving meals and doing those type of things. It's very easy while you're out cleaning up a park to, to you know, pull out your phone, snap a selfie with a trash bag um, and, and write something about out serving the kingdom and making the world better or out to help people feel, help to make my community a cleaner place or something like that. Um, so that raises the question for us then of, are we doing those events privately? Why are we doing those events? Um, is there a sense in, in Matthew 6 verse 1, it actually says that if you do the things publicly, then you actually kind of negate, you give up the reward that comes from them because you've exchanged that future kingdom reward for a present reward. So it's kind of an and or situation. Um, so I think that's a good place for us to think in our personal lives of where does the balance with social media, where does the balance with sharing with others, the good things that we're doing, um, where does that balance come? Uh, I wonder if it can even be as simple as, you know, writing that, hey, this morning I, in my devotional time, I read this great, this, this great quote from so-and-so, and then you type out the, the quote, right? Is that, where's the balance between that this is boasting to others that I've been reading and doing quiet time, and here's my quote to show you how insightful I am, um, versus the the actual act of doing those things to learn um, humility and, and discipline from them. Um, so I, I know that's an uncomfortable question. Um, and I know that I, I pose it kind of in, in controversial terms of an either or, um, but I think it's, it's worth us asking ourselves and it's worth us considering um, where we line up with our practices. And some of us um, don't use social media. And some of us say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not on all of those things that the kids are on these days, so I don't have to worry about it. Um, it, it, it manifests in the same way um, of you're on the phone with a friend and you mentioned that you can't, you've got to go because you've got this event that you're going to, or during prayer times, you say, oh, I want to ask for prayer requests for this particular situation. Cause I was out doing this and this came up. Right. So it, if you're not on uh, Instagram or, or uh, TikTok or any of the social media things, like these situations still come up and we still find ways to slide them into um, conversations. So if we're not out on the street corner with a megaphone um, blasting about the amazing things we're doing, we're still in a group of four or five people um, giving hints about what the incredible things that we're doing in our life are. So I think those are, are worth us considering and worth, worth us thinking about as we consider our own private practices. So I'm going to end this there for today. Um, as I said, the Lord's Prayer is an essential part of this section. If you're reading this throughout the week on your own, I would encourage you to go back and read that and to think about how the Lord's Prayer integrates into this. Why does Matthew use these kind of three clusters that all follow this pattern? And then right in the middle of it, put the Lord's Prayer. What's the function of the Lord's Prayer there? Does the Lord, Lord's Prayer follow any of these patterns? Does it support the themes and the theology of these patterns? Um, or is it just a, a kind of a, a speed bump in the middle of this discussion about religious practices? Um, so think about that in your, in your own time this week. And then the other thing I would like for you to think about is what is one practice, a religious practice that you engage in that is not one of these things, that is not giving, that is not prayer, and is not fasting? What's something that you personally do that you consider to be a, a private uh, pra uh, religious practice? And then how would this pattern apply to this practice? It might even be a useful exercise for you just to write it out, to, to write out two verses uh, following this pattern of when I do this particular thing that I do, I shouldn't do it like the hypocrites who do this publicly in order to gain praise, but instead I should do this, which is private, in order to make sure that, that I'm keeping my focus on the motivation of communion and relationship with God and not praise from people. So that might be an interesting exercise uh, for you to work through this week as well. I hope that this, uh, this discussion has been fruitful for you. And I hope that as you go throughout the week, that it's able to shed some light on Matthew, um, on Jesus um, and how Matthew views, views him and the relevance of Jesus's teaching for the church, uh, both the ancient church and for the church today as well. Grace and peace, uh, beloved friends, and welcome to our After Hours podcast. Uh, thank you, Dr. Zane, uh, for, for your lecture on Matthew 6. And uh, we're here with uh, Pastor Jeremy and our lead pastor, Jen, and we're with uh, Lana and Charlie Stevens uh, to have a conversation about Matthew 6 and about life and about faith. Um, but to get us started, 
love to hear the faith tradition you all were raised in, that, that inherited faith that, that you had growing up. What, what tradition do you, do you come from? I grew up uh, the daughter of a children's minister and pianist uh, in the Southern Baptist mm. tradition. So you're following in family's footsteps as our children's director. Yes. Well, yes. yeah. So he was music right? director. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Serving in ministry. Ex oh, ministry. yes. Yeah. Very much. Church was like second home growing up. Uh, I am, uh, I'm of mixed race. Oh. I'm half Filipino and my the other half is white and it's of Irish descent. So... Uh, if anybody knows either of those cultures, I had no choice but to be raised Roman Catholic. Right, right. <laughs> so very much raised Roman Catholic. Catholic school, our principal was a nun. Um, Sister Mary Roach. Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> that's unfortunate. Yes, I mean, that's unfortunate. <laughs> I mean, it was that great fodder. You, right. yeah, was like, oh, you had to be a principal like... with that kind of name. Right? Yeah, exactly. Ouch. Um, but yeah, so very ingrained. Uh, in that culture. So it wasn't just the, you know, going on Sundays, wasn't just like the Easter Christmas crowd, you know, very much the, the daily by going to a, a Catholic school up until sixth grade. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and Southern Baptist and Catholic, a lot of people joke that's that's you're a Methodist then if you right. came within oh, those two traditions somewhere in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. We made a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so this is coming out before Mother's Day. So um, and this is an interesting scripture because this is where Jesus is talking about. Okay, you've heard it said is what we talked about last week, um, but this is getting into the okay. Don't be careful. You don't practice religion in front of people to draw their attention. Um, and I think a lot of us, whether it was because of the faith we grew up in and the generations that raised us mm -hmm. um, or separate, there was a lot of show um, about how we had to look and how we had to be and how we had to act. Um, for me, it wasn't religion, but it was my, it was, it was my parents, it was my mom, you know, it, I think Lana and I have talked about, yes. you know, the, the little white socks and the black Mary Jane shoes and you had to wear those and yep. you just had to do certain things. Yes. Right. Um, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is talking about in our scripture today. So, so let me ask this just general question. What's the number one thing or number one or two things that you all wish someone had told you? about faith and the church or God when you were your child's age that was maybe different than the message you received mm. about faith of the church mm. when you were in your child's age. Do you, do you need a second? I, I might. Okay. You go ahead. This, this is like ordering food at a restaurant. I, I try to draw it out to give you as much. <laughs> 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 I, 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 there's so many things that I just want to like pick there. Because I, I can already think about what it is because I, you know, being raised Catholic and I, I you know, did that all throughout high school. And then when I went to college, it was kind of like the freedom of not having to uh, adhere so strictly to sure. the, the ritual and the routine. So I, I probably just like stepped away from doing anything kind of. Uh, church-based at all during college uh, until I started uh, up with a Methodist church, <laughs> actually mm. Winter Park, uh, First United Methodist. Mm. Um, but for me, I think what would have been fantastic to tell like younger Charlie being raised in a Catholic church is that, that you can have that relationship with God. I, th I think even if, even if they aren't so strictly saying it, because I know each different church and each different priest can be very different with how they interpret their role right. within a Catholic church. Right. Um, what is still seen by going to confessional um, and by the way that the relationship of the Bible is treated with mm. people that attend yes. uh, Roman Catholic churches is there is this separation. Someone intercedes for you. Someone's right. the one that can take your thoughts, wishes, prayers, all mm. those things to God for you. But until you are of a certain holiness, uh, which means until you're a monsignor, until you're a priest yourself, right. you may not be able to achieve that alone. Mm. So I wish that's something that I could have told younger Charlie. That like, you know, just go ahead and just pray. Right. You know, don't wait for someone else. Don't wait for Sunday morning at 11 uh, to do it when we do it in the church, you know, sorry, in the mass. You know, go ahead and do it yourself. Go ahead and open the Bible yourself. You don't need to stick mm. to what uh, what the yearly breakdown is or something like that, because there are books you will never hit. That's right. Books you will never, ever mm -hmm. touch. And, you know, I, I feel like I, I'm not sure uh, I ended up not knowing 
so much about the Bible, even after having gone to a Catholic school yeah. for all those years, even after going to, you know, um, religion class. They had a whole religion class in there and then also Sunday school. I felt like I, I walked away learning nothing, mm-hmm. you know, as, as much as I could. Have, you know? mm-hmm. That's so interesting, Charlie. It's like, just with, with the idea that there was a ceiling on how far you could go with your faith, mm-hmm. it limited you from, or it made you feel like you didn't even want to go as far as you could. Sure. Right. Yeah, that's a great way to think of that. Yeah, Yeah, that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is interesting because that's exactly what our scripture uh, that we're taking from. But when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, pray to your father Mm -hmm. who is present in that secret place. Your father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. Not like, ooh, what your father sees you do in secret, like you're trying to hide something. But like, this is between you and God. Mm -hmm. Just have that relationship. Jesus is super clear in our scripture about that. But Yeah. yeah, we... As professional religious people have said, no, we're like the mediator somehow. Yeah. 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 We take away the intimacy. Right. Yeah. Right? So I thought right. that's what I hear you saying, Charlie. It's, it's okay. Yeah. 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 And, and I, you know, I, I think maybe that could have also just been, again, my particular experience. I, I don't sure. want to blanket sure. statement that for everybody. Yeah. You know, the, the ch- that specific church as an institution isn't a monolith. Sure. I'm sure there's yeah, different right. relationships and different ways that people are being taught to communicate. But for me, that was my biggest takeaway so that's so funny because my i just had this conversation um my my siblings went to catholic school which Mm. is really ironic because we're like fifth generation methodist and um but they my oldest one had just gone through confirmation Mm -hmm. in the methodist while while his his uh colleague or his fellow students in in catholic school was going through um catechism Mm -hmm. and so he would like argue with the nun and go well no that's not what you know what about this and what about this and the nun finally mother superior called my parents and said could you tell like i appreciate the conversation but i have to teach our kids Mm -hmm. these things Mm -hmm. and your son is confusing (laughs) so wait till they're at least done then (laughs) you can go into some theological debates um i think for me um i think growing southern baptist I'm, it's funny listening to you because mm, I was in the Bible all the time. Right. I know every single book of the Bible. I was five years old knowing and singing the books of the Bible and the groups in which they fall, like the law, the poetry. Mm-hmm. The, you know, I, I can quote so many verses to you. I think what I would tell little Lana um, mm-hmm. is that you don't have to do all of these things in order to be enough. Um, I think somewhere it gets twisted. There's all of these things that you need to do to be acceptable or else God is going to be angry at you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you're always trying to read these books to get better, but there's an underlying current of like, I'm not enough. I got enough. So I need to pray more. I need to do more. I need to do this, do this, do this, do this. And, um, And there's also a sense that a lot of it, because it's all of those things, there's a lack for me of like spirituality in your body. Like you don't feel it mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. You have the head knowledge, you have those things, you're checking them mm-hmm. off. But that that spirituality, that knowing mm-hmm. of like go deep within yourself and do that, that you're not, at least I wasn't taught to trust that. It was always go into the Bible, know those things. And I just never learned to trust that spirit within me. You had to look elsewhere for it. Mm -hmm. So even as an adult, I don't trust necessarily. And we're also taught like, seek God's will, seek God's will, but you're not necessarily taught to know your own will Mm -hmm. and it gets twisted. And so you never really know what is yours. Right. Um, And so, yeah, you just, growing up also in a parody culture, um, you just shut all that off. Um, and so there's a very sense that you're not connected to yourself mm-hmm. and the spirituality. Um, and there's also the health thing of like, or else, you right. know, and so trying to always work and make sure that you're doing these things so that you can gain approval yeah. and be the good Christian. That reminds me, um, Hillary, Hillary McBride, uh, who is a psychiatrist and she also does a lot of work in faith. Uh, she said something recently in a tweet. She said, um, church abuse is when you are handed a voice of judgment and told it's the voice of God, mm-hmm. like an internal voice of yep. judgment and, t- and told it's the voice of God. And I think we, a, a lot of us have really, truly struggled with that. I know, yeah. I know I have as well in my upbringing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, those are all good thoughts. And it is so interesting how, I mean, and there's so much research going on right now, not to take us in a tangent, but I think it's yeah, interesting sure. as parents, you know, yesterday, Lana, uh, in social media, you talked about your child getting stung by a, a jellyfish mm -hmm. and, and the pain that that caused. And it's so interesting because it feels like somehow we have, we are supposed to love God, mind, body, and soul. But somehow the church has told us to shut down our body, right. which is where we feel all those gut instincts and feel the will and feel those. There, there is something to that. And so it's interesting to be able to parent and disassociate as a parent a child's body and their feelings, their pain and their feelings mm. of, of guilt, which all is held by the body. Mm -hmm. But we say that that's not what you come to God with, yeah. which is mm -hmm. which is weird because that's where some of us understand the will and yeah. understand the decision making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in that that verse particularly when it talks about mind, body, soul, I was like the soul we worked on, but like body you didn't get, and mind I don't feel like everything was going to the Bible, which mm. is fine. But then I was never taught to, think. to yeah to think through it, to question it, mm. to even set it aside and read other things. I mean, I, I don't know how many people in my church were like, it's the only book I need. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you go through seasons, you're like, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. yeah All right. the answers I need in life are right there. Mm. Yeah. Which we come from John Wesley, who wrote books about everything. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, we're like, how can that be the only book? I mean, you know, John Wesley in the Bible, maybe, but you know, not just that. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Yeah. And that God's created all of that mm -hmm. mind body and spirit, yeah. that, that a holistic faith and theology would consider those things and yeah. value them equally. Yeah. That who you are as a person, your own agency, your own decision-making, your yeah. own feelings is yeah. connected to your spirit and who you are, the essence of you. Yeah. yeah. So, so I hear you saying you would encourage you, little Lana to know yeah. that, mm -hmm. that, that all of who you are. Yes. Yeah. 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 That would be that whole essence. And I think coming to St. Luke's and having, hearing like, you are good just as you are, like that beloved children of God that was never spoken over us. Maybe it was, but I don't remember. It was always, you are born sinful, and mm -hmm. so you kind of have to work your way out of that. Mm -hmm. But just going, you are good as you are, um, was never spoken over us. So mm -hmm. saying that to our children, saying it to the children of the church and reminding them of that because they're going to hear the opposite so much of their life. Um, yeah. And I think coming here, that was one of the first places where I'd, heard that honestly mm. Mm. how much of a difference does that make to just <laughs> to hear when you're a child that you are good uh, right that you are good and thinking about you guys as parents uh and you guys both as individuals in your own faith journeys from where you started as children um i'm curious as you navigate and continue to build your faith as we all are how do you all navigate differences of opinions of, uh on theology or perspectives of god as you decide what to teach your kids about god that's a tough one, right? Because I, I, I feel like we've both, I feel like we've both come to maybe a very similar place now. Yeah. You know, I, um, I know for me, my, my, my deconstructing mm -hmm. as who is it, the skillet guy? That's not really a big fan of that word right now. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, uh, that for me really started uh, when I left. Uh, practicing Catholicism. So I maybe didn't realize it. That word wasn't really in, you know, the zeitgeist of conversation at the time. Mm -hmm. But that's really when it started, when I could see, oh, there's other ways of doing this. So for me, it was the first time uh, attending, like, a contemporary service with Landon when we were first dating. Because, you know, you, you want to impress the girl. So you want to <laughs> do go where she's going. And, uh, and you just see, you hear music that is maybe, you know, wasn't written a thousand years ago. And... <laughs> is something that you can kind of connect to and something that, you know, unlocks different parts of your emotion. And you could say, yeah, that's the music manipulating you into that sort of place. But I am a musician, so I connect first and foremost yeah. with, with music and with artistry in that way. So to see that I could worship that way and then to start reading the Bible on my own and see that King David worshiped that way and that it's wholly acceptable to be, you know, dancing. I'm not going to go as far as he did. It's um, <laughs> like his favorite story. <laughs> but just that you can have that freedom uh, in 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 worship, that it doesn't just have to be so right here in, in my hymnal. Uh, for me, that's really what kind of started me down that 
that path of seeing that there's other ways. And I think um, I, I've been seeing you kind of on that. It's so funny. Differently, because it's a different I'm thing that from had the to, opposite exactly. of like, raise your hands up, close your eyes as soon as that song starts, um, <laughs> to a more <laughs> traditional step-by-step, step, you know, there is a rhythm to this, mm. um, and taking away all of that. So for me, it's like I came from the opposite, mm. and I'm learning to find the, the simplicity and the reasoning behind things. So I think one of the things... Jeremy, you said was like where we're finding theology. I think one of the things that I'm growing in in regards to our children, um, based off of that mind, body, soul, um, mind especially, I grew up where evolution was like the devil's mm. word. Um, yeah. So you just, it was a horrible word. It did not exist. All of these things. And science is huge in Charlie's. And so when we got married, you know, I was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that would be a different. Yeah response to your question 10 years ago. Yeah, but... I think in that regard, because I'm very much, you know, old Earth. Dinosaurs weren't on the ark. Like, oh, you know? We just, like, agreed to not talk about <laughs> these things during the first few years of our marriage. Mm. Um, so in having our kids and doing my own, like, deconstruction and stepping away and, and starting to question things and, um, and doing all of that, I think for me, opening, one, our son's minds to science and... Uh, evolution and dinosaurs and age earth and 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 what really happened and going I don't know and trying to learn how to explain the creation story as a story and not God's gospel truth on things which when I started that was like uh you know <laughs> because you just believe it so going through science um, definitely in regards to, to feelings and letting them experience things and not shutting them down mm. and saying, I am here if you need them. Let's find a solution. I came to a house that um, peace was above all else and mm. conflict. We just kind of put that under the rug. Mm. So a lot of things wasn't discussed. So allowing that to come out and allowing our kids to mm. talk about those things, to question at a very young age. I was about to say that when you said I, I don't know. I think that may be something that maybe I didn't hear my parents say enough of that. Maybe no, it's never. okay for us not to know, but that means let's seek out the answer together. Right. You yeah. know, and then I think that's just, that's a fun bonding moment for us to have. But also it goes to show them that there's never a point in which we're stopping learning, that we're yeah. always growing and we're always changing and that I'm not, better than you because mm. I'm older than you. Yeah. I'm not better than you because I'm your parent. Mm. I'm at a different phase in life and there may be certain things I know that you don't know yet, yeah. but there's plenty of things I don't know also. Mm. Yeah. And mm. I think that that's, that's good for them to see. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, like I said, being five years old, learning scripture, memorizing, like I still find those fundamentally good as you go through your life and, and learning those scriptures and holding those truths. I also think it's important um, for them to understand them in context um, and to not, it's a balance for me, not forcing it, but allowing them to wonder about it and have questions about it and mm -hmm. always pull it back to their life rather than just read this, know the story, answer the questions about the story. Mm -hmm. um, Fill yeah. in the blank. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Good. Yeah. You know the story. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, understanding like what the Bible is, I will will be talking to our kids very differently about what it is, mm. rather than what I was raised, mm. what it is. So w that leads me to think. We y'all have used the phrase deconstruction. We've talked about this a good bit as, as the pastor, especially getting into this this Matthew series, where in some ways Jesus is doing some deconstruction for everyone who's listening. Absolutely. Um, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He's not yeah. dismissing scripture, no. right? Mm -hmm. And for me, the visual I have about deconstruction is, is your embedded faith, your, your, your bias, your culture is this kind of bookshelf filled with books, but also images and objects. And that they're just they're the biases we were born with. And deconstruction for me is taking those things off the shelf, mm -hmm. examining what it is and finding the value of it. And if there is no value saying, well, this doesn't have to be on my shelf anymore. Yeah. So I wonder for you all, as you're in that process, 
what are those things that in your faith tradition that were worth value that you put back on the shelf and now you've examined it, you see depth and, and purpose behind it that you want to make sure your your boy, you have two boys, yeah. know that that value of that part of uh, of your faith that's that's just really important for you to teach them about. I think for me, I think prayer is a very big one. Um, in understanding that connection and that presence to God and going deep and and being able to connect with the spirit in that way um, and learning how to be still with themselves in that. Um, and I think in wrestling with like who God is, when you're deconstructing, you get down to that point of like, who is God? Mm-hmm. Um, and helping our boys understand that God is not this man up the big white beard who was evil but loves but could send you but does it like that and understanding that where we see God in our lives could be in the acts of love that we do for others and where we experience those things um and to see those um I think that's one of the things that I'm really good and I think I've had conversations like I was always very good in like me and God, but not necessarily always in doing other things for people and having mm. that be an mm. overflow yeah. of that. And so I think having our kids understand the the serving of others, the looking at those on the margins and, and they're, the they're minorities. Really, they're really good at that. They're really good at that. You know, like I, I feel like our, our son and I, I don't know what we did. I I I don't want to claim it because I don't even think he did. But he's giving out toys all the time <laughs> to his classmates and stuff like that. If he has extra money, he 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 gives it to like homeless people that we see sometimes at parks and stuff like that. He goes, that person looks hungry, mm-hmm. and that's like allowance that he could have used to buy a Beyblade or something mm-hmm. random. And he knows that he could have done something for himself with that, but he instead chose to to give it. Yeah, you know so. Whether I, I don't I don't know how often we maybe verbalize that, but I think I think that is something that you're actively doing and something that you you're you're modeling because you know kids you can say say say, but they'll do what we do 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 yep. you know. Yep. So I think I think he's doing what he sees. So I, I just I just want to encourage you in that. that I think, oh, I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> I think yeah. It's something that makes me super emotional seeing my kids do that because there's certain yeah. things that you can hammer in and hope they learn. Yeah. But then when you just see them doing it without you having said anything, mm-hmm. you just go like, okay, so for all the times that you feel like you're like, oh, why'd you forget to do that? Or, oh, you did that. Or, oh, the teacher says you did that. You know, to see them do something so genuine mm-hmm. and just so thoughtless and selfless, mm-hmm. I think is is one of those moments where you go like, at the end of the day, all this stuff doesn't matter. We're not going to care about right. that 10 years from now. We're going to remember that little kid that that took up to him a big portion of his finances mm-hmm. and said, someone else needs it, not me. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. You know, and, 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 and the difference would be from what you said, you know, I grew up, we were born in sin. We would say, that's the image of God in that child. Mm-hmm. That's the image of God coming out and teaching the rest of us what God does look like. And 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 therein being the difference of the showiness mm-hmm. is that, mm-hmm. you know, some some religions have taught our children, you're sinful from the very beginning. There's mm-hmm. nothing you could do. Like you already had ten strikes against you, mm-hmm. and he's showing us, nope, the image of God is in me. Right. Just let me go mm-hmm. and right. let me mm-hmm. show you what what God looks like. That's so crazy, isn't it? I'm stuck <laughs> ever since like back in Mark with. Um, Imitating children is the way that we gain access to the kingdom of God. That's yep. imitatable. Now you take what he's done and you think about how to apply that to your own life, even mm-hmm. though you've already learned to share. But you get a fresh example through mm. this person who's unclouded by the weirdness that is <laughs> yeah. adult right. life. You know yeah. what I mean? That's all. Sheesh. Yeah. It's yeah. really interesting, I think, coming here, because like I said, there's so many things that you had to do. And even coming to St. Luke's and learning and growing here, and boiling it down, like the kids, when we teach it and we ask those questions, they're like, just love others, just love others. Right. You know, it's such a simple answer, but you're like, that is like the, the core. It looks different as you get older and you learn to, you know, navigate stuff, but they get that. 
And then just going, well, how could you? And what does that look like? And, and stretching them. But there's such a freedom and simplicity in that that I, I feel very responsible in, in teaching them that right. I didn't have as a kid. Well, thank you, Lana and Charlie, for spending some time with us um, huh? and sharing some of your, uh, your background and your experiences with life and faith, especially as parents who are raising kids in faith and trying to make sense of it all um, for all of us as we go throughout this week. And we are diving into Matthew 6, uh, verse 1 through 24, and thinking about these powerful texts that, that Jesus calls us all to. We hope and pray that this, uh, this time will benefit you. 